I'm excited you guys are here. Um, the way I wanted to start this was telling you guys a little bit of a history history lesson. You guys ever, uh, what's the one YouTube channel? It's like Epic History or something like that. You guys know that? Okay, well, I love that thing. I love any kind of historical battle. And so this one captured me. And it's one you should know. But on April 12th, 1945, President Roosevelt died unexpectedly. And it became Vice President Harry Truman's job to decide how he would end World War II. At this point in the war, Japan was the only nation left to fight, but the thought of invading Japan uh, was kind of terrifying to Truman because up to that point in the war, the Japanese had shown that they would rather die than surrender. And so what you had on the island of Japan were women and children who had been trained to kill U.S. soldiers if they invaded. And not only that, but you had Japanese kamikaze pilots who would turn their planes into missiles. And so the cost of invading a nation where every man, woman, and child would fight to the death would be extremely high. And it seemed like an unwinnable situation until Truman learned about the U.S.'s uh, secret weapon. Upon becoming the president, Truman was informed about the Manhattan Project which was the top secret effort to create the atomic bomb. So he didn't know about that until he was president. Uh, After the first successful test of this bomb, Truman demanded the unconditional surrender of the Japanese under the threat of what he called prompt and utter destruction. Eleven days later, with no response from Japan, the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And three days later, still having received no reply, the second atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Both of the cities were leveled and Japan finally surrendered to the U.S., which effectively ended the most deadly conflict in all of human history. Now, looking back at that event, historians agree across the board that there was no other course of action that would allow the Americans to win the war as cleanly and decisively as they did outside of the nuke. And so whether you think the decision to use it was ethical or not, I'm not going to debate that here. Uh, The reality is that the bombs gave Truman such an incredible advantage that he could win a war that most people said was unwinnable with one decisive act. And the reason I mention that as we get started tonight is because we as believers have our own fight to face. And like Truman, that battle can seem unwinnable to many of us until you understand our advantage. And so that's going to be my title tonight. I'm calling this sermon Our Advantage. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil. So those are the enemy. That's a pretty gnarly lineup. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever gotten into a real fight before, but it's usually not fun if the guy you're fighting is bigger and stronger than you. And that's uh, the picture that scripture gives to us, though. Our fight is against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers. I start thinking of like Thanos. You're like, what in the world? Cosmic powers. And then it goes on. It says spiritual forces of evil. And then there's itty bitty little us up against that. Um, You know, I remember the one and only time I tried to wrestle Christian Bonacquisti. (laughs) Some of you were there for this. 
I think. So you can attest that I uh, will not make that mistake again because I almost died. <laughs> we were in our house and uh, <laughs> in my house, there's this weird, it's shaped kind of funny. There's this weird fireplace that kind of sticks out and it's made of brick. And so, I mean, we're all there. Chance, this was when Chance was living at the house. And uh, for those of you that don't know Christian Bonacquisti, he was a, a starting lineman, defensive lineman for the Wheaton football team. So significantly larger than me, significantly stronger than me. But, you know, guys were wrestling, and I thought, what if I took him down? That would be kind of cool. So I was, like, I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, you know, we kind of are, we're all, we're on the ground, and there's kind of the, like, love tap thing going on there. And then all of a sudden, I, like, grab him. Like, I make the first move, and I'm, like, on his back, and I'm trying to, like, get to his neck from behind. And all of a sudden, he grabs me and throws me. <laughs> And it's not like a, he doesn't like go. He's hanging on the whole time and he slams me and I'm like shocked. And all of a sudden I see right next to my face is the brick from our fireplace. Like right there, like a centimeter over and you don't have a 20s pastor anymore. So, (laughs) you know, it's just not fun. I almost died and the fight was not even close. Like it was not even close. And I think that is a good picture of us when we go against the world with our own strength. When we try and go at this battle uh, that we call the fight of faith in our own strength, we lose. Uh, we talked about this last week, but our faith as believers all but guarantees that we will have to face the hatred of this world. And when you boil it down, really what that means is that at times following Jesus is going to cost us something. It might cost us our friendships. It might be our jobs, our reputations, maybe your comfortability. And if any of you were to go on the mission field, maybe it even costs you your life. But following Jesus costs something. But that's the point. That's what it means to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. We're on a mission for the Savior. The only thing is that the world doesn't want to hear about the Savior. It doesn't. And so if you start opening your mouth and telling people about Jesus, the world is going to fight back. And a lot of the times it can punch a lot harder than you can. It's a weight class above you. And if that's the case, then what is our advantage? What allows Christians to win a battle that so often seems unwinnable? Well, I believe Jesus gives us the answer in John chapter 16. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. We're going to be in John chapter 16. And I'm going to be looking at verses 4 through 15 tonight. And uh, just for context, up to this point in the gospel, really the last couple of chapters, Jesus has been emphasizing two things for his disciples. First thing he's been telling them about and highlighting is their mission. He's been teaching, what is your mission once I'm gone? You're going to have to go spread the gospel to the whole world. The second thing he's been emphasizing is the opposition to that mission, right? That's the whole passage I preached on last week. Just as the, the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. And some of them will drag you out of the synagogues. They'll kill you. He's saying, look, there's going to be opposition to the mission of Christ. But now, here in our passage, I was so excited to preach this one. Last week, so I was like, just, man, this is tough stuff. But you get to chapter 16, and Jesus is going to switch gears and start to unpack the power behind our mission. And that's where we find our advantage. And so I'm going to read it for us, starting in verse... Actually, I'm going to go to verse 1, and then I'll read through 15. Jesus says to the disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that's our passage for this evening. You know, at face value, when you read this passage, what it seems to be saying is that in the face of inevitable, terrible persecution, the advantage that Jesus offers to us is that he leaves. That's kind of what it seems to be saying here. It's that he goes away. That's our advantage. So how are you going to win? Jesus goes, I'm out. You're like, what? (laughs) Doesn't that seem backwards? But that's what the verse says. I mean, look at verse uh, seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And that's the key. I mean, just imagine if you were one of the disciples when Jesus said this. I was trying to put myself into their shoes. But up to this point, you've just been handed the overwhelming mission Jesus has just tasked you, you're a fisherman, uh, maybe at best like a tax collector, and you've just been told you have to go evangelize the entire world. Here's what you're going to do. I'm going to be gone. You're going to go transform the entire world. Wow. And then right after that, Jesus goes, oh, and on top of that, the entire time you're evangelizing, the entire time you're trying to tell people about me, they will try to kill you. If you're a disciple, you're needing some encouragement at this point. You're like, Jesus, okay. You know, it, what it reminded me of is when someone's like, okay, do you want the good news or the bad news first? You're like, well, typically, I feel like most people say, give me the bad news, that way we can end on the good news. But then they lied to you and they're both bad news. It's like, all right, well, the good news, you know, maybe Jesus, I could see it going this way. What do you want? Good news, bad news? Peter, give me the bad news. All right, Peter, you're going to have to go transform the world and you're probably going to die doing it. Well, what's the good news? I'm leaving. (laughs) You're like, are you kidding me? That's your answer, Jesus? What kind of advantage is that? How can Jesus leaving be an advantage to the gospel mission? Wouldn't it be better to have him here? I mean, that would have been the question on all of the disciples' minds. And honestly, that's a question for a lot of us too. 
We can easily start to think that. Man, Jesus, why don't you just come down now? Why aren't you here now? And we can miss what comes after in the verse. I mean, to answer that question, we have to look at what Jesus says in this text. And the answer is in verse 7. I mean, the answer Jesus gives is everything. He says that he must leave to send the helper. He must leave to send the helper. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It means that Jesus leaving can be to our advantage so long as he does not leave us alone. I'm going to say that again because this is the main point of the text. Jesus leaving is to our advantage because he does not leave us alone. Instead, he sends the Holy Spirit. And so that's what I'm going to be preaching about tonight, the Holy Spirit. But as I preach about it, the question I want you to keep in mind is why is it better for us to have the Holy Spirit than Jesus in physical form? Because that's the tension of this passage. As you're reading it, it seems like a pretty radical thing for Jesus to say, I'm leaving and it's actually going to be for your good. And so there are three reasons I want to highlight for us as to why he can say that. And the first one is because the Spirit joins us to Christ. The Holy Spirit joins us to Christ. I'm curious if you knew this, but at conversion, when you believe in Jesus Christ, even though Jesus is not with us physically, through the Holy Spirit, all, believe, all who believe in Jesus are then joined to him. This is one of the most amazing things that the Holy Spirit does. But theologians like to call this spiritual reality our union with Christ. And it, where it, really how you would understand it is that as soon as you believe, you are brought together with Jesus. And so when you look at scripture, what do you see? Well, you see that Jesus is called the head and we are called the body. You see that Jesus is called the husband and we are called the bride. You see that Jesus is called the vine and we are called the branches. There's all these illustrations throughout scripture that point to this reality that through the power of the Holy Spirit, when you believe in Jesus, not like after you get to a certain level, no, the moment you believe in Christ, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit takes you in Jesus and you're brought together so that all of the blessings Christ has won are now yours. What that means is that his victory is yours. His death on the cross is now your death on the cross, right? When we baptize someone, what are they picturing? Baptism is you going into the grave with Jesus coming out. His death is now your death. What does that mean? Also, his resurrection is your resurrection. His life is your life. His joy is now your joy. His victory, his glory. We get to share in the blessings of Christ. And that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit being sent. And that we as broken and rebellious creatures could be made one with our perfect creator. That is truly an amazing thing. And for this first point, um, if you're really paying attention, you're going to notice I don't really take it from the text. I'm actually jumping this straight out of Romans 8. And so I want to read this verse for you, but I'm, I'm mentioning this as one of my points because if you miss this, you start to miss the whole reason why it's so good Jesus leaves and we get the Holy Spirit. So let me read Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, two verses. And then Paul says to the believers, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if 
Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, what is really important to understand there is that Paul uses the spirit and Christ interchangeably. He says, if the spirit is in you, you have life. And then later on he goes, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. So to Paul, what this means is that having the spirit in you, it means you are so unified to Christ, it's the exact same thing as having Christ in you. The Holy Spirit is joining you to the person of Christ. And I want to explain to us why that should be such an encouragement. It's because it means we have immediate access to our God. And this has been a really like pastoral encouragement to my own heart. But I want you to think about um, the story of the paralyzed man who had to be let down through the roof to be healed by Jesus. When that happened, Jesus was entering his public ministry on earth. And wherever he went, there was a crowd. (laughs) There was a huge crowd. So much so that if you wanted to get to Jesus, you had to wait in line. And that's what happened with the paralytic. His own friends couldn't get through the crowd to say, we need the presence of Jesus for our friend to be healed. But the only way to do this, we got to climb this roof. We got to drop him in. And there's this huge weight. And throughout all the New Testament, you see people chasing Jesus. These crowds of people trying to get to Jesus again and again and again. They're waiting in line. They're going across the sea everywhere you look. But then after this, after the Holy Spirit comes, there's no more lines. And so if you are a believer here tonight, then you don't have to wait. You don't have to jump in through the roof. You know, there's none of that. You have immediate access to Jesus Christ. Something that those people in the, Old, in the New Testament were giving their whole lives to. <laughs> Chasing after Jesus. You don't have to chase him. The Holy Spirit gives you immediate access to our Savior. And the uh, illustration I always use for this, I've used it before, but it's kind of like going to an amusement park. I remember my first time going to an amusement park as a kid. And really quickly, I realized the worst part about being at an amusement park is waiting in line. You're like, wow, that ride looks awesome. 45 minutes later, I hope this is good. You're like, this better be worth my time. But then you look and over to your left, you see some punk kid who has not been in line at all with you for 45 minutes, but he has this little ticket. And he just goes, ooh, right up to the line, and he goes into the cart you were going to get in, and off he goes. And you're like, what's the deal? Like, I remember my middle school self from thinking this. Oh, he has a fast pass. He doesn't have to wait for the joy. He just gets to jump right in. It's immediate. And I thought, wow, that's me with the Holy Spirit. It's a funny illustration, but isn't that true? There's no waiting for the good stuff anymore. The presence of Jesus Christ and the fullness of its glory and holiness and peace, which is beyond radiance. In fact, if we were to be in that presence apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the work of Christ on the cross, we'd be eviscerated. That same holy presence we are now brought into. And the Holy Spirit is one who draws us. He joins us to Christ. So that even when we feel alone or we feel like there's no one who understands, you are never alone. There are a lot of people our age who feel alone. They're chasing, you know, kind of community on their phones. What a wonderful truth it is to know that God, there is somebody who knows me more intimately than anyone else ever will. And their love towards me is guaranteed because you already showed it on the cross. And I don't have to chase you. 
If you've ever had a friend that you've had to chase, it's not a great relationship. It's really wonderful when it's, they want to be with you and they're always there. And that's what we get in Christ. That's our advantage in this life. It's that even though Jesus leaves, we are now joined to him forever by the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's only part of the puzzle, which brings me to my second point. The second reason why Jesus leaving is for our good is because the Spirit convicts the world. The Spirit convicts the world. Or to put it in other words, it's because the Spirit proves that the world is wrong. In verse 8, Jesus goes on and he says, you know, I will send this helper to you. And he starts to describe the work that the Holy Spirit does. Listen to this. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, the verb there, the main one that sticks out is the word convict. And if you translate it, what it literally means is to show someone their sin and to summon them to repentance. Another word you could use is expose. And I'll never forget, there was a, I used to live in Chicago and I used to attend Moody Church. And they had this old Scottish pastor come. I don't remember his name, but I'll never forget his illustration. And he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit and convicting sin. And I wanted to share with you guys because I think it's helpful. And he described kind of his boyhood, his childhood. He said that living in Scotland, they had this big house And the basement was made of stone, but it had no electrical wiring, so it was pitch black. And as a boy, he talks about how he would be sent by his mom to, like, go get stuff from the basement. And he'd be terrified, you know? Like, there's, like, it's kind of like stone. And if you've ever been to, like, UK, it's, like, damp. So, like, creeping down. He said he would never go down alone. He's too scared. And so he had a lantern. So not a flashlight, a lantern. Like, you're holding it. It's like, and it shines the light. He goes, I would go down with my lantern. But it was, uh, unlike the ones where it shoots light everywhere, it was like directed. And it just shot a beam. He said, and as I would go down the stairs, as a kid, I'll never forget, you know, you just kind of would draw the beam across. And as you look, it looks like an empty, dark room. But then all of a sudden, the light would just expose. There's all these things in there. You have boxes here. You have trash here. All these things. And he said, and that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does to the heart of a sinner. He goes, it is the light that shines into the darkness and exposes what is there. And that's how scripture, uh, that's how John chapter 16 describes the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that he will convict the world. I mean, that is, he will shine the light, the beam into the darkness of the world and expose all the deeds that are done. And uh, with that, he's gonna do it in three ways that he mentions. He says he's gonna convict them concerning sin, and righteousness and judgment. And so just a brief note on the three things. Why does Jesus mention these three areas? Well, first starting with sin. He says that the spirit will convict them concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Do you want to know what the root of all sin is? Not believing in God. What happened when Eve believed the lie of the serpent and ate the apple? She believed his, his words over God's. She did not believe in God. What happens when, um, you know, you are with your sibling and they take the cookie that you wanted and you like deck them right in the face? You don't believe the words of God, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself, clearly. What do you do when you used to go to church, you've stopped going, 
you had a good community, but it just became exhausting. And now it's probably been three months since you went. You stopped believing in God. Any kind of sin you could think of, I could go through any example, but anything you would look at, it ties back to this idea of, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the one that God sent? And the Holy Spirit's work is to convict, to expose if you don't. And you know what's amazing? He doesn't say, disciples, it's your job. He says, look, it's the Holy Spirit's job to do that. And that should be an encouragement to us in our evangelism, that you do not have to be the one who exposes it all. You present truth, and you let the truth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring people to conviction of sin. There's something really powerful to be said about that. But that's not the only thing. We have righteousness. That one's a little more odd. Why would the Holy Spirit, yeah, sin makes sense. Of course he's going to convict us about our sin. But righteousness, what's he talking about? That was my question. I had to look into it. And here's really what came back. The reason why the Holy Spirit was going to convict people during, uh, considering righteousness was because he's honing in specifically on the Jews here. The Jews thought that they were righteous for putting Jesus Christ on the cross. In fact, even Paul talks about that later on in the end of Acts. He talks about how when he was persecuting Christians, I thought what I was doing was pleasing to God. I thought that was righteousness. And what uh, Jesus is telling them, look, everyone's going to think they're doing the right thing. They're all going to shout with one voice, crucify him. But when the Holy Spirit comes, when he comes to you, he will convict them that it was not righteous. Christ was righteous. He's saying, I was righteous. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, if you go to Acts chapter two at Pentecost, this is, I mean, it's, Acts is just one of the coolest books in the Bible because it's just Holy Spirit doing work for a long time. But Peter gets the Holy Spirit and he preaches this sermon and throughout the whole thing, he's talking to Jews and he's saying, and this Messiah, you crucified, the one that you are looking for to save you, the one that you think has righteousness, you missed it. And you want to know what they do? The Jews who were listening. It says that they were cut to the heart. And they asked the apostles, what shall we do? That wasn't because of Peter. That was the Holy Spirit fulfilling what Jesus promised right here. That he would convict them concerning righteousness. All of a sudden their eyes go, oh my goodness, we killed the Messiah. You want to know what's incredible about that? Those men were baptized and they were saved from their sins even having yelled, crucify him. So Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he convicts us concerning righteousness. And then finally, concerning judgment, it says that the Spirit will uh, convict concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. This one is all about the victory of Christ. Satan thought the, the cross was his victory. I hope you realize that. In the grand scheme of things, the devil thought, yes, this is the moment Right? It's almost like the illustration, the parable Jesus uses with the, the vine, uh, the vine dressers or the, the vineyard that he had rented out to some guy. And then he keeps sending his servants to go and get the, the money or the return from it. And the, the guy he rented it out to keeps beating the servants, right? And sending them back. Finally, the master goes, I'll send my own son. Surely he'll listen to him. And it says that the man who rented out killed, killed the son. And he thought, yes, I killed the son. Now I get to keep it. And then Jesus says, what do you think the master's going to do? He's going to destroy him. <laughs> and that's what happens. Satan thought that he had defeated the Christ and he was a fool. Because at the cross, 
the head of the serpent was crushed and Satan was defeated. And so concerning judgment, the Holy Spirit, when he came down, showed the whole world and Satan too, that Jesus was alive and that he had not been defeated. And so that is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you, it should be a comforting work because he's still doing it today. You being here is evidence of that. Just think about it. Apart from the convicting work of the Spirit in your life, it would have been impossible for you to be saved from your sin. If you're a believer and the Holy Spirit doesn't do this, you're not a believer. (laughs) No one comes to salvation except by grace through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. And the gift is that the Holy Spirit convicts you first. And you realize, I need a savior. I need somebody who will shine the light on my darkened heart so that I would see that I need Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is there are probably people here tonight who need to hear that. People here who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that and saying, wow, maybe I'm not a believer. The joy is just like those men who crucified Jesus. You can be brought into salvation. And the joy is knowing that even though Jesus was crucified and died, he was raised again. And now he offers salvation to anyone who would believe in him. Anyone. Does not matter how far you have gone in your sin. It does not matter how lonely or desolate or how undesirable you may feel. Jesus died on the cross because he wants you. And the response is to repent and believe, to turn away from your sin and to acknowledge, Lord, I am not God, it is you. So put your faith in Christ. And if you do that tonight, then know that that is a miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is our second advantage. The Holy Spirit convicts. It should drive us also to to share the gospel boldly in our mission. It really should. But here's the last one. Point number three, the Spirit declares the truth. The Spirit declares declares the truth. In verse 12, Jesus tells the disciples that he has a whole lot uh, left to say to them. I love this verse. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. My translation, you can't handle the truth. Can you imagine being the disciple? You're like, what? And she's like, yeah, you don't even, it's like when somebody teases you, they're like, I got a really good secret. And you're like, what? And they don't tell you. You're like, come on. Jesus is kind of dangling something in front of him here. He's saying, look, I'm going to go and look, you're not going to have everything you need yet there's still going to be more revelation for you to unpack. And what's important to understand about this promise that the Holy Spirit makes, that he will guide them into all truth. This is being made to the apostles specifically. And what Jesus is promising is that after the Holy Spirit comes down, these men will be inspired to write what we consider the rest of the New Testament because we need the whole book. And so it is to our advantage that the Holy Spirit came down so that we would receive the scriptures. Who inspires the scriptures? The Holy Spirit. I mean, there's some really cool stuff you can get to in the language. I mean, the, the, the word for spirit, it's similar to the one that you use for saying God breathed. The Spirit's work is to give us this book so that the church would have all that it needs to, fair, uh, to finish out the mission. But with that, I do think that there is an application for us. Because even as he inspires the Old and the New Testament for the apostles and the prophets who wrote it before them, for us today, he illuminates it. The Holy Spirit's work is to illuminate the work that he inspired. What that means is just, again, putting light on it so you can understand. 
And so if you have the Holy Spirit and you're reading through Leviticus, that's where our reading plan has us now, and you're sitting there, you're like, this is the eighth bull I've read about being slaughtered. You're like, wow. You're like, this is really cool. And you're like falling asleep practically. One of the things you can pray is, God, give me more faith by the power of the Holy Spirit to see what this actually means. Help me to see the deeper meaning because sometimes it's complex. If it wasn't complex, then there wouldn't be volumes and volumes and volumes of people who have studied it. It's complex, but we have the Spirit guiding us. And so now, 2,000 years after the Spirit has finished His work, we get to have the complete Word of God that is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. We have the finished work. So why is it to our advantage that Jesus leaves? So that we get this. Jesus is the Word. And we get to submit to this and come under it in our mission to proclaim the gospel. So that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He leads us through the scriptures and it is a blessing. And the illustration that came to my mind, and I'll wrap up with this, but I was thinking of the Exodus. One of the coolest things about the Exodus story is that after God works these crazy miracles, brings them out, you know, through the Red Sea, like there's just these moments you would want to see. You're like, that would be cool. I love the way that uh, Prince of Egypt paints the, the parting of the Red Sea and the whale, like lightning flashes and the whales there. I was like, that's so cool. But anyways, that's not the moment I'm thinking of. The one that came to my mind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I got lost in the movie there for a second. I got lost. The moment I was thinking of was actually how God would then guide them after that. And it talks about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the flame. And that by day, this massive, like I just imagine like a tornado in my mind just going in front of them. And then at night, a flame so that they could continue to travel or stop and rest. And the whole purpose of it is that God was going with his own hand to guide them to the promised land. To guide them to the place they needed to be. And I thought, what a picture of the Holy Spirit's work for a believer. He is now our guide in his work of declaring the truth to us. And what he does through the scriptures is he wants to get us to the destination, which is Christ. And so every time you come to the word, that is the Holy Spirit's work. It is to take you to Christ. You want to know how I know that? He says it here. Verse 14, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. What's the Holy Spirit's purpose? To glorify the Son. And he's going to do that by drawing you nearer and nearer and nearer to him. And so when you read scripture, I thought, what an application. We should engage prayerfully asking for greater faith as we read and praying that the Holy Spirit would guide us to Christ wherever we are that morning. Whatever I'm reading, God, let this guide me to Christ. Let me guide it to the better promised land with, you know, the, the, the milk and honey that overflows. That's what we need. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. What an encouragement. And you're not on your own in this. The Holy Spirit will take you there. And as we close, there was a, a hymn I wanted to read to you guys. It's a... It's a hymn, not that hymn. Uh, it's a hymn by an American farmer. So this is not an old hymn. But he wrote it and it says, Holy Spirit, faithful guide, ever near the Christian side, gently lead us by the hand, pilgrims in a desert land. Weary souls forever rejoice while they hear that sweetest voice whispering softly, wander, come, follow me, I'll guide thee home. Ever present, truest friend, ever near thine aid to lend. Lead us not to doubt and fear, groping on in darkness drear. When the storms are raging sore, hearts grow faint and hopes give o'er. Whisper softly, wanderer, come. Follow me, I'll guide thee home.
When our days of toil shall cease, waiting still for sweet release, nothing left but heaven and prayer, knowing that our names are there, waiting deep the dismal flood, pleading not but Jesus' blood, whispering softly, wanderer come, follow me, I'll guide thee home. So may that be true of us, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, each of us will be drawn home to our Savior, and until that day comes, that we would be encouraged to go and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that we don't do it on our own, but we have a far greater power that will enable the mission. Let's pray.